0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello and welcome to SEAC Stories. This podcast is brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. SEAC is a university-wide multidisciplinary initiative that facilitates collaborations and builds on the expertise of our researchers to address the region's challenges. This podcast tells the stories of our members exploring and sharing their research in and across the region.
2: Welcome to CX Stories. My name is Tashaya Dibley and I'm one of the Deputy Directors at the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre. Today I'm excited to introduce Dr. Bob Hudson, who's an Associate of the Asian Studies Program here at the University of Sydney. Bob's an archaeologist and an advisor to UNESCO and the Myanmar Ministry of Religious Affairs and Culture. Welcome.
0: Thank you very much. I'm much more at the culture end than the religious affairs end, I must point out.
2: So today Bob will be talking to us about the research he's done to support the application for Mrao U in Myanmar, a historical site, um, to gain UNESCO World Heritage status. Maybe you could start us off by giving us a little bit of the background of the site. and Where is it and why is it important? Well,
0: it's a city that features six or seven hundred, and perhaps more to be discovered in the jungle, stone Buddhist buildings, which generally are stupa shaped like a conical shape with a hollow interior which technically makes them a temple under the unesco definition and frequently a beautiful big stone buddha inside and they had such an industry going making these stone buddhas that frequently we find them in sections where the shoulder is designed to fit on the body and the head is designed to slot in the shoulder and you end up with something a couple of meters tall that's very imposing looking so, enormous craftsmanship going on in the stone masonry for this city, which was built between the late 1400s and the early 1700s.
2: What are some of the other really distinctive features that make this site worthy of being a World Heritage Site?
0: Well, there are three huge buildings, the size of a European cathedral, made from stone. All with, or each of them, each of the three with very distinctive characteristics. There's one called the Shitong, which means the 80,000, which means 80,000 Buddhas are supposed to be in there. And around the inner walls of it, there's the most beautiful old stone carvings. And these stone carvings represent the three worlds the world of the animals, the world of the humans, and the spiritual world up at the top. So the bottom level has parades of elephants and crocodiles and things. The middle has all sorts of human activities, wrestlers doing wrestling competitions, which are still popular in Arakan today. And then up at the top, you have uh, celestial figures. Uh, and this was rediscovered, I guess, in the uh, late 19th century. It was a ruin at that stage. But we had another fabulous building, which is called the Tukantane, Tain. And the Tane means an ordination hall. And this is a building with a long corridor that goes round and round and round until it comes to a little central room, which is presumably where the ordinations were meant to take place. And all around the corridor, there are little stone statues, little niches with a Buddha in each niche. And then on either side, there is a representation of someone. And usually it's a man and a woman. And the thinking is that these are the families, the important families who are contributing at the time to building the pagoda and contributing their sons to be monks. And so you could almost picture as the boys are going along to their ordination, they're actually walking past a little statue of mum and dad at various times. So you can see it was a very personal kingdom. You know, everybody knew everybody. It wasn't big enough for a huge bureaucracy necessarily to exist. Everyone probably knew pretty well what their job was. And then the third giant building, which was only excavated about 30 years ago, is called the Kothong, which means the 90,000. So that's the son of the fellow who built the 80,000 trying to do 10,000 better than Dad. And it just consists of beautiful little carved stone panels. Each panel with three or four hundred stone Buddhas on it, as well as the bigger stone Buddha images. And again, this is a big processional walkway going all around inside the building. And then uh, beyond these gigantic ones, there are maybe fifty to a hundred middle-sized ones, the size of a big suburban church. Uh, and then there are lots of there are hundreds of smaller buildings, say. 10, 15, 20 metres across, which are probably individual religious donations with, uh, again, a stone Buddha always in the centre. And many of these are on hilltops, and the hilltops are covered in jungle because this is an area with high rainfall, and so the jungle grows beautifully during the year. And then during the dry season, the Department of Archaeology has people going out trying to cut the jungle down again and preserve the buildings a little bit from it.
2: And where exactly is it in Myanmar?
0: Uh, you'd be familiar with Sitwe, the capital of Rakhine State. If you look at the map of the Bay of Bengal, just down the bottom of Bangladesh is the beginning of uh, Arakan State, which is the west of Burma. And uh, there's a big river called the Kaladan that goes in from the coast. At the mouth of the river is Sitwe, which used to be called Akyab. And Sitwe is the state capital. About 50k upriver which was very good for protection from your enemies in those days because your enemies had to sail 50 kilometres past your cannon on the bank even to attack the city, it is Mra'u, which sits in a little range of hills. And There's a river on either side and the hilltops are surrounded by stone walls where there's a gap And then where there's a hill, they've actually carved down the sides of the hills, put a little fortressy thing on top, usually made of stone or brick, and then put a big ditch at the bottom made from the stuff that's been carved off the hillside. Remarkable engineering, uh, and even more remarkable, of course, for the fact that it was never used. They got so good at warfare that they were able to meet their enemies a long way from home. So after all of this enormous expenditure on fortifying the city, they never had to use it.
2: So who was it who built it?
0: It was um, a group of Buddhist kings. Buddhism is a very good religion for being king because in Buddhism, of course, you've got the belief that what you did in your previous life has contributed to what you are in your present life. So if you're the king... You deserve to be the king because you've done good deeds in your previous life. So theoretically, nobody should overthrow you, except someone who thinks they've done good deeds in their previous life, of course. That leaves it all open. And they had their families and their followers. And in Rau, particularly, because it was right next to Bengal, they at various times had heaps and heaps of slaves and they helped to build and defend the city.
2: All these stories that you're telling us about how the city came to be, this, these are things that you've discovered through your work on the site?
0: There's been a lot of historical study done over the past 130, 140 years. The problem is that the Kingdom of Arakan was invaded by the Burmese in the 1780s, and one of the things that happened when it was invaded was that they set fire to the palace and virtually all the palace records were destroyed. And so the whole documentary history of the kingdom really vanished. And so in part, we learn about it from what its enemies wrote, or we learn about it from what uh, Dutch and Portuguese traders wrote who traded with the kingdom. But there's a great scarcity of documentation. So what we need to look at to get information is what's still there and that's where archaeology comes in we look at the buildings we look at how they're constructed we look at the artworks that are there and the stories that they're telling and that's how we try to pull a bit more information in about the kingdom
2: you've worked on this site for how long now
0: 20 years when i started i I'd still remember one day we went out we were looking at hilltops when you see a tree poking up out of the hilltop and it's very jungly That tree is almost certainly growing in the ruins of an old hilltop stone temple because the temple's fallen down. It was held together by lime mortar. So you've got some nice lime to sweeten the soil. You've got a nice container of water. So it's like a giant pot plant with the tree growing in it. And so you go up and have a look at this. And then in the middle will be the ruins of your old stone Buddha. And so we measured that up, recorded it and recorded its actual location and we did go out one day uh, with the help of some cowboys. Cowboys are boys who look after cows because they knew the hills really well. And so they said, yes, there's one over there and one over there. And we, we recorded 12 temples in one day that had been forgotten and never recorded for the past three, 400 years. So that's the kind of exploration fun that we got into uh, just starting the research towards what eventually was our World Heritage nomination.
2: Could you tell us a little more about how the, World Heritage, the idea for the World Heritage nomination came about?
0: Well, Myanmar has several World Heritage sites now, what are called the Pew Cities, which are three first millennium cities, which had brick walls around them, and Pagan, which is like the Angkor of Myanmar, which got World Heritage a couple of years ago. Uh, I've worked on both of those projects and then we moved on to Mrau. One of the stimuli for that was because of the, the local turmoil at the time with the Rohingya who headed off over the border to Bangladesh. Kofi Annan, who had finished his job as Secretary General of the UN, led a fact-finding mission to Arakan. And one of the findings was that it would be a really good idea, with everybody fighting each other, it would be a really good idea to go for World Heritage status for this ancient city, just really so that everyone would have something to feel good about, that everyone would have something to feel united about in their history. And that was one of the main incentives, I think, to heading for World Heritage status for this wonderful old city.
2: So almost a peace-building strategy. So does that mean that Mura'u is a site that everyone in the area has a joint sense of ownership, and equal sense of ownership over, or is there some contestation around who the place belongs to?
0: There's always mixed opinions. The people who live in a place think it belongs to them. The government thinks it belongs to them. The Department of Archaeology administers the historical part on behalf of the appropriate ministry. And they're a very enthusiastic local committee like a progress association which is interested in the history. And they're among the big movers and shakers in getting things done. And there are also various NGOs coming in, assisting people with everything from agriculture to medical projects who all like to have a say. But as far as the the World Heritage aspect, the buildings are concerned, Everyone thinks they should be looked after, but there are certainly differences of opinion as to how they should be looked after. There are always differences of opinion as to how much cement should be used on repairing ancient buildings. The historical architecture enthusiasts and experts say not so much, and people who are making a donation of cement and want it all just to look nice tomorrow think, yes, let's just slap it all on. So there are gentle disagreements.
2: So one of the tricky things about this particular site is over the last few years, it's also been the site of quite violent conflict.
0: In Mra'u itself, there were about uh, three or four years ago, there was a national altercation in northern Arakan with the Rohingya, who are seen by the Myanmar people as being illegal immigrants from Bengal or Bangladesh. Most of those are no longer Myanmar's problem, they're Bangladesh's problem because they've all just moved across the border to live in refugee camps. The big conflict problem now is between the Arakan army, which is a nationalist rebel group, and the Myanmar army. And um, that has brought itself into Mrau itself. The Burmese army, has, uh, uh, even 18 months ago now, was uh, firing artillery out of the ancient city because they have a base there over the next river into the hills where the rebel bases were supposed to be. Soldiers were reported to have gone around shooting at people's houses in rau and so no international observer or advisor has been there in two years to see what's going on. So we rely for our information on the local people who belong to this committee who, who luckily... We have uh, modern communication devices such as Facebook on which we get photographs and reports and all sorts of fabulous information.
2: So where, where are things at with the application? Has it been awarded World Heritage status?
0: No. There was meant to be a meeting last July mm-hmm. of a committee of about 23 countries which forms the World Heritage Group In UNESCO. That was cancelled because of COVID. Now that meeting was supposed to just take a preliminary look at the application and then the meeting next year was supposed to be the one that would decide and vote. The problem is that this year's meeting is already off and so we just don't know whether they're going to do everything next year uh, including the backlog or whether it's going to be postponed. But once your application goes in for World Heritage Status, It then has to be checked over very carefully by UNESCO because it's really like filling out the world's most enormous application form. It's uh, four volumes of very detailed information, this form. And you have to get it right. And the most important thing, and what I always think is the terrific trick that UNESCO plays on people who want World Heritage status, is you have to have and apply a management plan. Because a lot of places, you've just got a whole bunch of ruins sitting around. And to make them work, to make them viable, you have to have a way to repair them, to restore them, to protect them, to look after tourism, down to the level of how many toilets do you build for the tourists and where are they going to be located, not too close to the ancient buildings, all kinds of small things. Where are the hotels going to be allowed to be built, not too close to the main buildings again? So all of these things have to be incorporated into a management plan and you have to get the management plan rolling as well. You can't just write down a thing and say, oh, yes, we're going to do this fabulous management plan if you give us World Heritage status. No, you have to get going on it. You have to do it. And of course, that's really good for the site. That's the great trick, I think, of World Heritage, that even the process of applying for World Heritage improves the site. So we don't know exactly what's going to happen. Maybe next year uh, there'll be a vote. Maybe not. Maybe it'll be the year after.
2: Thanks, Bob. I think you've given us a, a wonderful snapshot of what's going on in, in that area in Raoul. And uh, we wish you all the best with your continued work in that area. Thank you for joining us.
0: It's an absolute pleasure. And can I just remind people, you can find Mura'u by doing search on the internet. And there's lots of lovely pictures that you can find because people love the place so much that everyone who takes a photograph of it puts it up on the web.
1: Excellent. Thanks. You've been listening to SIAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. Make sure to keep up with all our SIAC Stories podcasts by following us on your favourite podcasting app. If you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media.